Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hey! <laughs> Hello! Today we're speaking with award-winning journalist, activist, and author George M. Johnson. George's work focuses on the topics of race, gender, sex, HIV, intersectionality, politics, culture, and health. And they have been featured in many publications, including Teen Vogue, Ebony, Entertainment Tonight, NBC, and of course, The Roots. Most recently, George's memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue, which came out this past April, was optioned for TV by none other than Gabrielle Union, which is very exciting. It is super exciting. And I am so personally excited for George in this endeavor. You know, we spoke when the book dropped back in April, and this book is so honest and compelling and important. And in some ways, I can't believe it didn't exist in the world before because what George has done here is really provide such an incredible touchstone for not just kids who are living outside the binary, but their families, friends, communities. You know, I think uh, their writing here is just incredible. Oh, most definitely. I mean, books like this, the fact that they exist, for children living outside the binary and their families is amazing. When I think about how I grew up in the 90s and how children who were LGBTQ were treated, like it's night and day. Like <laughs> night and day, like it was it was horrible to watch that unfold um and how people were treated. And I think if books like this are so important in erasing the stigma that exists around sexuality in this country. Absolutely. And acknowledging there is a full spectrum. Uh, Well, I am super excited to talk with George about this more. So shall we get into it? Absolutely. Hey, George. Hey. Welcome to It's Lit. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Oh, we're the ones that were honored to be in your presence. Absolutely. This is amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. And it's great to have you back as a guest after you've written for us at The Root. You've been in videos for us at The Root. And we, of course, love that immensely because you are the best. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And since It's Lit is a podcast about Black books and writers... We like to break the ice a little by asking all of our authors to name at least one book that they have read in their lifetime that they consider to be absolutely life-changing. Like, this was the book that blew your mind and made you go like, oh, snap, if I could only create something as brilliant as this, I'm going to do it. Um, One book. It would have to be The Four Agreements. Ah. And I actually just 
I just talked to, I have a college professor who actually that was required reading for her. Um, and she, Miss Murray, she was also my advisor in college. And she just called me maybe two weeks ago saying she had just read my book. And we talked on the phone for over an hour. And I've known her for, I guess now, 17 years. And um, but we always talk about the four agreements anytime we talk on the phone, because that book, anytime you read it, if, if you're at a different stage in life, everything in the book means something different at that point. And so, um, so yeah, The Four Agreements is definitely a book that I always go back to, to, to like reread and to like process like where I'm at in life versus where I was the last time I read it. I love that. Awesome. I love that. I love that you uh, keep up with your teachers as well. I think there's something really special about that. And, you know, I am thrilled to have you back because we actually spoke back in April when you were, it was just, I think, a few days ahead of the release of All Boys Aren't Blue. And so I'm excited to dig a little deeper into this today because at the time, you know, we were we were publishing an excerpt, so we didn't get a chance to really like get into some of the mechanics of what we discussed. But I I remember telling you at the time how incredibly special that I feel this book is. And obviously I was not alone because uh, <laughs> All Boys Aren't Blue, uh, it became an almost instant bestseller. So congrats on that. And I believe it's now in its what, fourth printing? It's fourth printing. In, in just over as many months. So like that's a Amazing. And, you know, obviously this was a very personal book. I mean, you called it a memoir manifesto. Um, did that really public response surprise you at all? Yes. Um, I guess like in my in my spirit, I was like, I felt I had written something really special. And but I guess every person who makes an album, writes a book, feels they wrote something really special. So it was like I didn't want to like make it seem like how I felt meant something different than how everybody else feels about when they put so much uh, into a product or something. But I did feel like it was really special because it seemed like the more and more people were talking about it, it seemed like the less that the story or my particular type of story existed, especially in the young adult space. And so I knew then like, okay, I think this is going to be something a lot bigger than what I had even imagined. And, you know, I'm very big on manifesting things very big on writing things down. So I had all of these hopes and everything for the book. And like, even before the book came out, Gabrielle Union was interested in it. And so like, I already knew things were going to happen um, just around the book, but then to see like it start to make like CNN's list and People Magazine and BuzzFeed and like all of these other places started to place it on like these really important, powerful lists and all these other really influential writers started to share it and support it. It, it definitely went to places that I didn't think or I didn't even foresee that it was going to touch uh, certain markets and certain people in a way that it did. Well, it is a it's a very moving narrative. I, I, I get it. Oh, totally. And so we've noticed that you've often paraphrased Toni Morrison, who in life and spirit is one of the patron saints of writers. And you said that you wrote the book you needed to read when you were growing up. All Boys Aren't Blue Explores Adult Themes was ultimately a coming-of-age story, and we hear it has been approved by a school district in your native New Jersey. Um, Have you gotten any memorable feedback from young people or their parents about your book? I have. I think the most important feedback that I got was um, someone anonymously sent me a direct message, and they said that in their household, they know that they aren't allowed to read books like that. And they don't know how to talk to their parents about it, but that they basically ordered the book and had it sent to a friend's house. And they snuck the book in the house and are reading it at home and wanted to just reach out to me to let 
me know that I think I think he was 16 that the book was reaching reaching the people who it needed to reach and that again but like to know that like he didn't even feel safe enough in his home to ask his parents to buy that book but that the book could still get to him I think that was one of the most important messages that I got um and then the other message I get I don't get as many from parents as I thought I would but I get a lot from aunts and uncles so it's almost as if not almost as if, what, what it seems like is there are a lot of kids whose parents aren't as accepting of their identity, but there's always that one aunt. Like there's always that one black aunt that knows and is like very protective of that particular nephew. And, you know, it's like the aunt will reach out to me like, well, I know what my nephew is and me and my nephew talk about it, but their parents aren't comfortable with it. But I got the book for me and my nephew and I'm going to make my sister read it or am, I'm going to make his parents read it. And then we're just going to talk about it. So that's the other side of it that I've gotten. And, you know, definitely some parents have reached out and said that, like, their whole family is reading it because they have, let's say, one queer child. I had a friend from high school who said that her son, he's like five or six, told them that he was gay. And so she was like, it was so Interesting because she was like seeing your book come out and knowing you all those years ago and seeing, you know, who you become and what you are. She was like, I got the book for myself and my husband and we're going to read it and then we're going to talk, you know, more to my son about what's going on and some of the things that he may experience uh, growing up. So I think those were definitely the most important messages that I've been receiving so far. No, it's definitely beautiful. The fact that people are using your book as an instructive tool and how to better speak to their Love yeah. like that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, that actually got me really emotional. I mean, we're also aunties, you know. Danielle and I are aunties. So. <laughs> yeah. like, the, my nephew is golden. Yes, me so. too. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm that auntie. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we we are totally down with that. Um, but on the subject of parents specifically, uh, yours play a major role in your book, as does your late grandmother, Nanny. One of the most affirming parts of your story is how supportive and unconditional your family has always been in their acceptance of you. But we know that's not always the case for a lot of other families with queer kids, especially some Black families. What would you say are our biggest stumbling blocks as a community? And what would you say to Black parents and guardians in particular about this? Yeah, I think one of our biggest stumbling blocks is, you know, the notion of what's respectable. And like, I think, you know, Christianity in many ways has kind of like dictated what we see as a respectable thing. And so I always liken it to like, especially when I'm talking to like Black families about it who are like, but this is not okay. And, you know, they bring religion into it. They bring all these other things. I'm like, yeah, but like, what parts of the Bible are you practicing that aren't okay, right? Like, do you ever interrogate that? It's like, you know, like women weren't allowed to wear pants before. Like that was actually like a thing, like you could not wear pants in the workplace. And if you did, you could be fired. You could be, you know what I mean? I was like, as times change and as, as we start to learn more about people who have always existed, I always like to say it that way. Like, we're not like some new anomaly. It's like, once you realize like we've always existed, it's just our stories are the ones that don't get told even during, you know, slavery, right? It's like, it wasn't that we weren't there. It was just that there were different pressing themes at that time that needed to be discussed. And us having a gender, sexuality, and autonomy to even talk about those things was not a thing, right? Because we were property. But as we transitioned from property to quote unquote humans by law, 
then we started to get ascribed certain rights and certain topics that we were able to fit into, right? And so feminism was a thing that, you know, Black women have had to fight white women for. And it's the same thing with us, right? Like gender equity and gender equality was another thing. And so I'm always like just pushing Black families to understand that like Blackness is not a monolith and it doesn't have to look like this one uh, nuclear thing that we've been kind of assimilated into and ascribed to just because of our existence, particularly here. And so if you know the history, then you know we existed pre-colonization. We existed in Africa. Like there are stories about gatekeepers and oracles who were genderless and orishas and, you know, like, so like we've always existed. And so I'm always just pushing Black families to be more open about just understanding the fact that like when the story I always use is everybody always prays for a healthy child, but what you're really asking for is a healthy heterosexual child. And the sooner that people are able to admit that, the sooner they can then unravel those layers as to why that is the actual request that they want. Because again, a child is just a child and you are here to parent and nurture the child. You are there to give advice and you are there to build structure, but you are not there to dictate what that child innately feels and innately gravitates toward, but you are there to nurture it and to learn from it. And so I'm just always pushing Black families in particular to understand that we really don't have space to be divisive or space to separate our own community because we truly are all that we have. And so I think about like who I've got to become because I had a supportive family. That's all it really takes. It really just takes like a supportive family to understand who you are and to love who you are like innately and unconditionally. And you can become anything and feel protected and safe. You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I love that you actually made that mention of, you know, this idea that we, we and we do do this. We, we've done it. We've done it to women. I mean, you know, they used to do it to black people, you know, en masse. But we do it ourselves, this idea that like we can't talk about gender. We can't talk about sexuality. Like, we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about this equity issue, and we can't resolve this thing until we resolve this other thing. And I love that you encourage us to hold space for all of that concurrently. And one of the things I heard you say in a recent interview, I think it was with Good Morning America, so congrats on that too, (laughs) is that, uh, you know, despite having that safety in your own family, that there isn't really such a thing as, like, just a, a unilateral safety for a Black queer person. And, you know, we obviously see that in the treatment, particularly of the Black trans community, and you know. And I would say, you know, I, I guess I want to know, aside from opening a much-needed discussion with All Boys Aren't Blue, it seems like, you know, as somebody who follows you on social media, that you've also tried to create that space, you know, in advocating for marginalized folks on your platform. You're open about your HIV status as a spokesperson for New York State. Like, you know, obviously everybody isn't comfortable being as transparent as you are, but why do you feel that is crucial? Um, I live a purpose-driven life. And so because I'm very spiritual, it's like, it's just one of those things, like when you know what your purpose is, you just know what your purpose is. And when that purpose has been affirmed, like time and time again, you just realize that, you know, some people's lives, like whole livelihoods is to just be a vessel. And so I, I think the realization that I was supposed to be a vessel is what helped me to get to that space to be comfortable enough to be as transparent as I am. Because it's like, at some point you just sit and it's like, well, somebody has to do it. 
And we all know that somebody has to do it, but then it just takes the one person that realizes like, oh, I'm supposed to be the one to do it. And so for me, it really was just like kind of thinking about it. It's like, well, why is Magic Johnson still the only person we know of, right? Like all these years later, like all of, you know, when you think about all of the celebrities and the athletes, right? And and again, like you look at, you look at numbers, you look at statistics and you look at shows like, I it was like an Ayala Fix My Life or something when the, the, the basketball player was dating Brandy and like he cheated like, I don't remember, it was like hundreds of times. It was something like absurd number, right? In my mind, I was just thinking like, that's so interesting because that never correlates back to statistics, how HIV sits in certain communities, how Black women are also a very large carry, you know, um, Mm -hmm. a large group that um, is also dealing with the epidemic. It has epidemic levels just like Black queer people. And I'm like, but those conversations never happen in that space, right? And so for me, it was like, well, I have to start to create the space then for these really, really important conversations to happen, even if I have to be the person that carries the burden of the conversation. So it's like, yes, I am the person that is a very well-known HIV positive person, you know, but I also am the person that's the very well-known queer person. And I'm also the very well-known now member of Alpha Phi Alpha, which I'm sure is going to be an issue at some point. I'm also the very (laughs) well-known, you know, person that goes to the HBCU, right? And so it's like, I have all of these different intersections. And I think for me, it was important, or it's always been important that I have to show what it looks like to live in totality. Like, I don't just live in this lane. I don't live in this lane. I don't live in this lane. I don't live in this lane. I live in all of these lanes concurrently. And it's important to showcase that us as Black people move in all of these different spaces, like, like that. But some of us have to just be a little bit more transparent, a little bit more vulnerable because it literally saves other people's lives. And it's necessary to, even if it's just one of us or two of us, three of us, to create these conversations and to hold that type of space and and put that energy into the world because it changes lives because it changes minds, I think is the easiest way to say it. And when you can change people's minds, you can change their actions. And there are a lot of heterosexual people whose actions have changed simply because of being my friend or being in space with me or even being in proximity to me just because of me being so open about it. And so I know that the work is working, maybe not as fast as I would like, but (laughs) I know that I have to do that work and it's heavy and it's hard sometimes, but, but I think it's worth it in the end for me. Hey, Brian, did you know the world sucks right now? You know, I had kind of noticed that because, yeah, every day I wake up, I'm like, is this really real life? I would say, yes, it sucks. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of sucky things in the world right now. And we're started a new podcast that's going to fix it. So I guess we should probably introduce ourselves. Uh, My name is Brian Kahn. I'm the managing editor at Earther. And I'm Alex Kranz, the senior consumer tech editor at Gizmodo. And we're here to tell you about a new podcast that we're doing at Gizmodo focused on... Everything, fixing it, making it better, making the world suck a little less. It's called System Reboot. And we're covering a lot of important stuff that we think is really worth hearing and learning about. 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of systemic failures across the country and around the world that, you know, the pandemic has really highlighted them, but they've been there all along. And we thought, you know, there has to be a better way to do things. There has to be, from the disastrous food supply chain issues we witnessed really early on in the pandemic to the absolutely shoddy internet that we also saw early on and are seeing a lot more of right now as everybody returns to school. We're going to be diving into the systems that are failing us across the board. And more importantly than examining the things that are failing, we're actually going to talk about what we can do to fix them. That's the whole system reboot idea. Yeah, positivity, man. Yeah, it's kind of novel. We're going to try this out and see how it goes. But you know what we're going to be doing is talking to experts who've spent a lot of time researching these issues and coming up with solutions. So if you don't want to believe that the world is going to end in 2020 and you want to hold on to just a little bit of hope, please check us out. And join us on our quest to fix what's broken. I like that you brought up the fact that you're a member of Alpha Phi Alpha. I'm actually a member of the Divine Nine as well. I'm a Zeta. And one of the more unexpected parts of All Boys Aren't Blue is how you found community in your fraternity, which most of us might consider a hyper-masculine space. How have your brothers responded to the book, your non-binary status, and What promise, if any, do you think that holds for how Black men engage with others across the spectrum of sexuality? I will say so far, so good. Um, (laughs) So far, actually, it's been really, really good. Um, Headquarters actually shared one of the interviews I did with NBC around social justice. So that was that was good. Like, you know, that was I was like, okay. And headquarters. And like I said, I I will say, like, it's it takes time. Like, you know, these fraternities, you know, we've been here over a hundred years now. It, it just takes time because we didn't have the identities. It's like, and again, we've always existed in the fraternity. We just didn't have the language to say what we were. Mm-hmm. Um, now I think we're in a space where many of us have the language to say what it is that we are. We have the, the, the space to be able to have conversations and I will say, like, there are just a lot of queer members of fraternities and sororities. So it just is what it is, right? Like, and the queer parts of the fraternity love the book, of course. Like, all of the queer men in the fraternity are, like, really, really excited. The heterosexual brothers, I will say, a lot of them did read the book, and I think it changed a lot of their minds. And I think it educated them on a lot of things that they weren't privy to and some of the things that they weren't privy to that they were doing to others um you know like when we talk about like fraternity we're always talking about the better making of men you know the aims you know it's like manly deeds scholarship love for all mankind and it's like but we say those things but do we practice those things and so i think that the book gave language and space and critique it allowed the mirror to be held up to many of their faces to, to actually say, are y'all actually practicing the aims and the mottos of these organizations that we're in? Because it is for the better making of people. And we are people. But when you're making someone better, it doesn't mean you're making them heterosexual. It doesn't mean you're making them respectable. Like better doesn't have to always look like this thing that's the accepted standard. And the image of the Black male isn't monolithic as no image of a Black person should be. And I think 
the more that we have these conversations, the more we can move away from us having to look like a thing. And so I think the fraternity has been very, very respectful of that. I'm still interested to see, you know, as things progress, because I am very vocal that I'm a member and a proud member. Yeah. Yes. Like, you know, like I'm a proud member and my platform is growing. So it will be interesting, right? Because it's like, what happens if George, this non-binary, they, them becomes the most famous member of the oldest Black fraternity, collegiate fraternity, right? Like, well, that's never happened. So it's like, how do we then operate with what the, the, the image of the frat is if the most famous person's image is George? But I think that's a conversation that will happen and I think it's necessary to happen. But I also think that's one of those conversations or one of those things that could create the actual necessary change we need in community when we talk about who can lead us and who can be seen as a leader. You know, I I, I personally am I'm rooting for it. I'm here for it. I think it sounds like an incredible opportunity, you know, and, and you know, you were just talking about going by the pronouns they, them. And, you know, I recall, I guess maybe it was a month or two ago, because we had an exchange about it, you know, that you made that declaration. I mean, I know you privately have been using those pronouns for a while, but you made that declaration publicly. You know, there was a very, I am George M. Johnson. I am a non-binary queer person. My pronouns are they and them. You were really gracious about it. But, you know, I think I'd say at the risk of putting you on the spot, but you are a vessel. So I'm going to, I'm going to do that. You know, obviously a lot of people still struggle to use preferred pronouns for people to understand why they matter. I think we all have our own little kind of, you know, habitual stumbling blocks where we'll trip over our tongues or do whatever. And, you know, as we know, this is an increasing issue and it's something that we do all need to be cognizant of. You know, do you mind explaining why it is important and why it is important to you? Yeah, pronouns are important because, and I I say like, especially as Black people, pronouns are important because like, when have we ever had the space to define who we are? Like, I mean, like, seriously, right? Like, even now, like, when, when we have, like, capitalizing the being Black conversations or, like, these are really just ways that we just have to, like, define who we are because we never had the opportunity to. Our identifiers were always determined by white people. When we were Negroes, when we were mulattoes, when we were African Negro and the African American, like, they, they change, and they change it whenever they want to, like, change how they feel like they want to talk about us, right? And so I think for the first time we get to define like, well, no, this is how we want to be talked about. And this is how we want to identify. And I also think it's important because I always say like, one of the most dangerous things that the world gave power to was a doctor looking at someone's genitals and determining that their whole life should go down a certain path based on that. And I don't think we just get to the most simplest form of what that is. Like, realistically, that's one of just just the most powerful, like that person has the most powerful decision in the world because they literally are dictating to, to a baby from birth that you have these genitals and this is now what your path has to be because of that. And I think when you say a person gets to choose their pronouns, it then takes that power back away from the person who made the decision of what they said you were initially. And so I think that's what the power of pronouns are, what the power of just identity and having the words to say, I feel this way, I am this way, this is how I am, this is my being. And I think that's what it all plays into at the end of the day is just that you are able to say who you are and what you are. And I think then that leads into the conversations of when you're able to say, I am not okay. 
when you are able to say, this makes me feel like this, because that's realistically what it is. Once you have the power to say, this is who I am, you then have the power to tell people what you are and what you feel. And I think a lot of us don't know how to operate, you know, like to, to, it's almost like, you know, like, oh, it's hard for me to say no. And it's like, but why is that? Who ingrained in us that that, that, is, that that should be a hard thing to tell somebody no, or that this makes me feel bad or, and I even talk about it, I guess you can relate it to the, my first sexual experiences where I talked about, like, I didn't even know I could stop sex, right? Because I didn't have that language. I think it all goes back to the way that like, once I had the power to identify this is who I am, it gave me the strength to use my words to say, and this is how I feel. And this is how this makes me feel and give me the power to talk in a much different way about how I just operate in life. No, that's incredibly powerful. Um, I feel like a lot of people don't realize that so much about identity is about self-defining who you are and taking that power back that has been historically taken away from us whether it is about our color, our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our sexuality, like so many things about the Black body was not allowed to be our own. And so I think that's a really powerful statement. So I see now that through this book, though, you're getting the opportunity to break through into television, developing a series for Sony with Gabrielle Union's production company, I'll Have Another. How has that transition been and what has been the most exciting thing about the process so far? The transition's been interesting. Uh, I mean, it's something I've always dreamed of. I guess for me, it's like, as a writer, I'm always just like, well, I can figure it out. Like, it was like, (laughs) I, I used to be a CFO and I used to work in higher ed. I used to do HIV work. Like, I used to do all of these things, but like, I went to school for finance, did finance for a long time, and was like, oh, I want to do HIV work. Went, learned how to do HIV testing, how to do counseling, you know, learned all the data, did all of that stuff, did it for a few years, and then was like, oh, I like writing. I think I'm going to go into writing. And I started freelance writing and did freelance writing until I was like, you know what, I think I want to write a book. And then I wrote a book, and now I was like, you know what, I can write a TV show. Um, that's <laughs> not as easy as some of the other steps have been. But um, what I will say is I definitely have like writing guides. I have great people in the community like Stephen Canals and like Matthew Cherry and like people who I actually can talk to that, are you know, help me and give me, you know, advice on writing a TV show and doing those things. Because it's so much different than just writing a book because you just everything that happened in the book, clearly you just can't be like, okay, we're just going to put this on TV and bam, we have a show. It's like so much more goes into it, so much more thought, so much more creation and everything has to go into it. But that's that's been like it's been exciting, a lot of studying and researching so that I know what I'm doing as we look for the co-writer. One of the most exciting parts was definitely meeting Gabrielle, even though it was through Zoom and like actually being able to talk to her for like several hours just about the book and the process and like her ideas and her thoughts. And she's just so meticulous about everything and she just knows the business so well inside and out and she really champions the work um and it's just a champion for great storytelling and wanting to see it on television and i think the amount of excitement the announcement got was kind of like interesting because i mean people announce book options all the time but it just seemed different when i announced it um it went it really went viral and um in a good way because i was nervous we were pretty giggy. Yeah, we were very excited. Yeah, I was like, but I was like, if this hits the shade room, this is going to be a long 48 hours. I oh, just was no. like, literally, I was like, please don't hit the shade room. Please don't hit the shade room. 
But it is funny though because my tweets always end up on the shade room. So I know that some people who work there follow me because my tweets always end yeah. up on there. Like when funny stuff happens and I, you know, do something witty, like I always end up on there. But I was like, I wonder if this, but I think they must, I think whoever is following me is also considerate about the fact that like certain things, yeah, like this is a big announcement, but we know if we put this on here, it's going to be heavily, you know, attacked in many ways. Mm-hmm. So I was worried about that. But what I will say is like, like a lot of Hollywood reached out like very interested already like in wanting to be a part of the project and 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 those things so like that was really really encouraging and affirming and so um i think that's been the best part about it it's like that the the show in my opinion has a lot of support already before we've even been able to like really get things moving because of covid but yeah oh that's incredible and also you have another book already in the editing phase i hear i do (laughs) (laughs) will this (laughs) will this be another young adult offering or are you shifting the conversation so this will be another young adult offering it was specifically highlight myself my younger brother and my two cousins who were primarily raised by nanny and so this will dive directly into the experiences the four of us have with her as like four little black boys who were primarily with their uh, grandmother and learning from their grandmother. One of the biggest things that I guess I, I guess in just in going through the process, I noticed is that a lot of people were quoting me from my book, like pulling quotes and like, oh, I love that George said this. Oh, I love that George said that. And for me, it was interesting because I thought about like, well, how many people get quoted that we don't ever learn about or hear about? How many people do we hear about that that never get quoted about, right? Like we always know the MLK quotes. We know all of the Malcolm X quotes. We know Fannie Lou Hamer and Toni Morrison. But I was like, but my grandmother had quotes too. And like, that was our wisdom. That was our connection. That was our everything. And so I was like, well, what if I, you know, found a way to put like these wisdoms into a book and like started storytelling around that. And so that's what the next book will be about. Um, It will be about Black boy joy and just kind of the experiences of Black boys. I think about how like our stories only get told through one lane, which typically is like trauma or violence. And even if that existed, it's like, but what were the moments of imagination for Black boys? What did it look like when y'all were skipping rocks? What did it look like when y'all were eating ice cream sandwiches to get like, what did all of those other moments look like? And so I wanted to make sure that I told that side of the story while also giving my grandmother, I guess her wings in, in a way and telling her a lot more of her story. The first book really tapped into the, I always say like the, the, the big mama soul food side of her. This is going to tap more into the Medea side. <laughs> so the soul food side will still be here, but, she also was not one to hold her tongue and she also was fine with uh with having to fight people if they if they wronged her or us and um so there were multiple occasions where that occurred <laughs> um, <laughs> i just thought it was going to be i think it's going to be important that people see like oh like she was not playing and i'm like no in addition to nanny she was also called big lou by her nephews but they called her big lou because she was like big Lou to them, like she would knock us out. And so I'm excited to kind of show that because I think it's interesting. Like the black grandmother story usually gets told like either this way or either that way. Mm-hmm. It's like my grandmother was both of those things. She could cook and, you know, did the Thanksgiving feast, but she also 
if she felt that y'all wasn't supposed to get married, would raise her hand at the wedding. So like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she was, she was both of those people at all times. And so I just was like, you know, I think this is important to kind of tell the totality of what the stories look like. So I'm excited to bring that into the world. Well, George, we want to thank you so much for joining us on It's Lit. It was lovely seeing you as always. Yes, and we was totally, great. Thank you. We totally wish you continued success. We're rooting for you. We can't wait to see what develops with Gabrielle Union and her production company. And we can't wait to see what develops with this next book. So thank I'm you. Excited. Yeah, all the best. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people find the show. And why would you want to keep this all to yourself anyway? Why? Why? <laughs> if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to ask each other what we are reading right now. Maisha, what are you reading these days? You know, uh, George got me back in the zone of like, you know, talking about James Baldwin, who... You know, so many of our, our guests really, you know, as we've been looking at this season is a touchstone. And so I've been revisiting. And so I've been looking at Giovanni's Room, which I think is, again, a groundbreaking book. And when you think about, again, the way that we came up, really, when you look at what Baldwin was doing for that time, really revolutionary in terms of expressing sexuality and and just same-sex love so i mean you know because as we know like we talk about it in terms of sexuality but we're talking about affinities we're talking about something that's much deeper and much more grounded than that so uh that's what i've been looking at how about you danielle you know speaking of baldwin um you know baldwin lived in france and i've been just reading everything i can on black people who live in France, whether yes. they're black Americans, whether they're from Africa originally. You know, I'm just really into that right now. So I'm reading Venus Noir by Robin Mitchell, which is all about black women and colonial fantasies in 19th century France. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Yeah, super excited about this book. Um, I really enjoyed digging into it. And that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Keep it lit.